Our gospel lesson today comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. You may follow along on the large screen or in your own Bibles. Let us hear the word of God. He, meaning Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On January the 24th of this year, one of our longtime members, Ted Adams Jr., died. I was blessed to be with him and his four sons the afternoon before, and we held his funeral service here in the sanctuary. You may recall that Ted's father was Dr. Theodore F. Adams, a pastor of Richmond's First Baptist Church for some 32 years, from 1936 until 1968. As we are planning the funeral service, Ted's sons gave me a book of their grandfather's sermons entitled, The Windowsill of Heaven. The title of the book comes from a little poem that greatly influenced Dr. Adams' life and ministry. The poem goes like this. Every morning, lean your arms a while upon the windowsill of heaven. Gaze upon the Lord. Then, with the vision in thy heart, turn strong to meet thy day. Since receiving this little book, I've been reading Dr. Adams' sermons in the morning during my devotional time. And this past Monday, I turned to read the next sermon in the book entitled, A Spiritual Yardstick. And when I saw the scripture for the sermon, I stopped in sheer amazement. It was one of those holy moments where you, you just know that God has spoken. God always speaks, but there are times when you really sense that You need to be listening. The text for the sermon is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. 
the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Several months ago, as I was doing long-range sermon planning, I had selected Luke's version of the Beatitudes for today's sermon. While there are some parts of Jesus' sermon that are unique to both Matthew and Luke, most scholars do agree that Luke and Matthew record the same event, although there are slightly different accounts and content. As I read through Dr. Adam's sermon that day, I was struck by its simplicity and its timeliness for the here and now. As I reread it the next day, I sensed that I needed to adapt the main points of his message into today's sermon. I can't say it any better than Dr. Adams has already said it. The question that he asked back then and what we're asking today is simple, but it's not an easy one to answer. And the question is, how do you measure spiritual growth? How do you measure spiritual growth? How do you measure spiritual attainment and maturity? If you're a Christian, since you became a believer, have you grown any stronger, any wiser, any better, any more mature than when you first came to Christ? How do you and I measure spiritual attain, achievement? Over the past year at HRBC, we've been in a season of evaluation. We've been asking a lot of questions. We've had focus groups and we've distributed surveys. Many of you, of you have participated in those and will likely participate in other feedback loops later. We're asking, how do we measure spiritual growth? Perhaps it's like Membership in the church, that's important. Or would it be that we give to the church? Of course that's important. Would it be by attendance in worship services? Absolutely, that's important too. But how do you measure it? What yardstick can you and I use? We say that we are seeking the full measure and stature of Jesus Christ, that we know the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of the love of God we can say with Paul in Philippians, not that I've already attained, but I press on toward the mark of the measure of the standard of the fullness of Christ. But still, how do you and I measure? There has to be some standard. We can't be like the little boy who went up to his mother one day and says, Mother, would you measure how tall I am? And she said, Give me just a minute. Let me finish what I'm doing, and then I'll measure you. And before she could finish what she was doing and go and get a yardstick to measure him, he came back and said, Mother, I've measured myself. I'm 11 feet tall. And she said, How did you figure that? And he said, I made my own yardstick. Often we do just that, don't we? How do we measure spiritual growth? We might begin by asking, How do we measure anything? If I were to ask you, how much is a yard? You would say, well, that's three feet, Pastor. How much is a foot? You'd say, well, Pastor, that's 12 inches. And then I would say, well, how much is an inch? And you would say, well, an inch. But how do we know an inch is an inch? What is the basis for that measurement? And if you have sort of a scientific kind of way of thinking, you know that we can find standards of our measurements. All we have to do is Go to the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's an agency of the Department of Commerce with offices in Maryland and in Colorado. 
They maintain quality measurement systems for scientific research. They hold the official atomic clock so that we can tell precise time. And they maintain the Office of Weights and Measures. They can tell us the exact measure of an inch, a foot, or a yard. All yardsticks must be measured by that standard. Time is measured as well. We have days and hours and minutes and seconds and so on. Recently, one of the members of our church dropped by my house and surprised me with a six-pack of Snapple. I know what you're thinking, but it was Snapple. Peach tea Snapple, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. And if you know about Snapple, you know that on the bottom of their caps is something called a real fact. And they give you the fact, and then you can go to their website and learn more about it. Last Thursday, when I drank my Snapple with my lunch, I read the bottom of my cap, and it's real fact number 419. A jiffy is an actual time measurement equaling one one-hundredth of a second. So next time you say, do it in a jiffy, it's a very short measurement of time. Whether it's height or weight or distance or time, everything must be measured by a standard. One day, Dr. Adams attended a Bible conference here in Virginia, and the president of a college was the speaker. And the college president said he wanted to talk about some questions that would help people measure their spiritual growth. And Dr. Adams listened to the questions and wrote them down and pondered them over the course of his ministry. I read them in that little sermon, A Spiritual Yardstick, and I commend them to you today to help us measure our spiritual maturity. Here's the first question. How teachable am I? In other words, how humbly do I stand before Almighty God? Do I think I know it all? Do I think I have all the answers? How humbly do I stand before the greatness and majesty and wonder of the God of the universe? Dr. Adams tells the story of a time he was in England and visited the Coventry Cathedral. Some of you may have been there and experienced that. As the tour guide was taking his group through, he pointed to the great majestic tapestry that portrays the reigning risen Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful tapestry. It is said that it is the largest human-made tapestry in the world. Dr. Adams said to the guide, I see Christ sitting on his throne up there for sure, but what that tiny little figure of a man is doing down there between his feet? What of that? And the guide smiled and said, you'll be interested to know that the tiny little figure of a man between the feet of the reigning Lord is a man who is life-size. Only then did he realize how great was the cathedral and how tiny was he. We have so much to learn. I have so much to learn. How humbly do we stand before the Almighty God? The second question is this, how aware am I of others' needs? In other words, how sensitive am I to the misery and to the needs of other people? We Christians should care and care a lot. 
and care enough to do something about it? How sensitive are we to the frustration and fear and loneliness and desperation and hunger and the misery and the poverty and the wants of other people? There is a sensitivity not to just those people over there. It's easy to say, well, those people. And often they're far away and they don't cross a path with us. But we're thinking about people right here. Not just people of our own color and kind or nation, but all of God's children. How sensitive are we? How sensitive are we to help people and to do something about it? When they hurt, do we hurt? Do I hurt? Do I hurt enough to act? I've said several times from this pulpit in the four years I've been here, when the teenager hurts, the senior adult should feel the pain. When the senior adult hurts, the teenager should feel the pain. And that was the real tragedy about the priest who passed by on the other side that day as compared to the Good Samaritan who perhaps because he had suffered so much himself was sensitive to that poor, bleeding man on the side of the road. He was sensitive enough to help. How sensitive are you and I to the needs of those around you, around us? And the third question is this. How have I learned to discipline myself? How well do I keep my God-given abilities disciplined and under divine direction? God has given us wonderful power. He's given us authority. He's given us power in our minds and in our bodies. He's given us emotional and spiritual powers as well. Remember Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and your strength. Do, they, do, do you and I control them or do they control us? Are the powers that, in our, that are in our hands under our control? We have the power of speech. It can help or hurt. We have the power of love that can create wonderful things within the bonds of marriage but can also be pure lust if left out of control. We have the strength of our bodies which can be used towards selfish gain or for the good of others. How have we learned to discipline ourselves? How easy it is, for example, for a coach on the athletic field, maybe the court or the field, to control her or his temper and not get thrown out of the game. How often have you seen a coach lose it and argue with the refs and get ejected from the game, and then the team is affected by that and they lose? How earnestly do you and I seek to do the right thing? Sometimes it's fairly easy to talk about it, but it's very difficult to do it. How earnestly do I seek to know? How are we persistent no matter where it's found and where it leads? Are you and I ready to know and to do what God wants us no matter what? Because it's not always easy. A great preacher once said, Early in my ministry, I asked God to help me always to know the right and then to give me the courage to do it. At the end of a long and fruitful ministry, he said, never once did God fail me. A fourth question. How do I get along with other people? Or more importantly, how frequently and how graciously do I extend a helping hand to those with whom I differ? That's the hard part. How often and how graciously do I extend a hand to those who may have wronged me? Isn't it a willingness to go the second mile with those who differ 
Isn't that a good test of spiritual maturity? Or a willingness to forgive, isn't that a good test of spiritual maturity? A willingness to love in spite of the hurts, to agree to differ, but to resolve our differences in love? Early in my first pastorate, there was a man who opposed nearly everything that the church wanted to do. If I was for it, he was against it. I called my predecessor, Dr. Moffat, can you help me understand so-and-so? Bob, I wish I could help you. But one Christmas morning when he had cardiac arrest and was rushed to the hospital, I left my family and went to the hospital. When he had to have bypass surgery some years later, I prayed with him before the surgery and visited him after. When his mother died, I was there to offer care and ministry and comfort. It's not always easy. But how do we get along with others? How frequently and how graciously do I extend a helping hand to those who have wronged me? How closely am I in tune with spiritual values? with the spirit and purposes of God? Are we tuned in enough so that God can speak through us, to us and through us? Often we sing the words, let others see Jesus in you, that well-known hymn. We want others to see the Jesus in and through us. I'm reminded of Henry Nouwen who said, whenever we opt for and not against one another, we make God's unconditional love visible. We are diminishing violence and giving birth to a new community. Christians, we are on the same team. We may differ on some things, but we are on the same team. And when we see each other in the hallway, if there's a difference, we do not turn the other way. We're better than that. Bigger than that. How well am I learning the art of getting along with other people? Am I easy to live with? It is said that usually the people who we have the hardest time getting along with are the very people who have the hardest time getting along with us. How am I willing to put my interests and desires aside that I can listen to the other person that they feel heard and understood and I the same? And the fifth and the final question is this. Am I ready to endure hardship as a Christian? How worthy am I to endure hardship and to suffer for Christian truth and ideals? It is never easy to be a Christian and to do all that a Christian ought to do, especially now. Dr. Adams tells the story of a Lutheran pastor named Martin Miller who was imprisoned by Adolf Hitler in Germany. He was imprisoned rather than betray the Lord. Hitler admired him so much that he allowed him to remain in prison as opposed to putting him to death. One day some friends said to Miller's father, it must be terrible for you having Martin in prison like that. And his father replied, it's hard, but it would have been infinitely harder if God had wanted to witness and our Martin would not have been willing to be that witness. It's not always easy. How worthy are you and I to endure hardship for Jesus' sake? In the name of Jesus, we stand for racial reconciliation. 
That's very important now, especially in the Commonwealth of Virginia. In the name of Jesus, we stand for the rights of the unborn. In the name of Jesus, we stand for the rights of the migrant and the refugee and the asylum seeker. In the name of Jesus, we stand for parity in our schools. In the name of Jesus, we stand for fair and affordable housing in the metropolitan Richmond. In the name of Jesus, we stand for transportation that enables members or residents of Chesterfield County to get to where the jobs are to provide for their families. In the name of Jesus, we stand against bullying and we stand for the overlooked and the left out and the oppressed. In the name of Jesus, we stand for equal justice for all. In the name of Jesus, we stand for the vulnerable and for those who are in the most need. I believe that is what Jesus meant in this sermon. The implication for our churches today is a decided lifestyle embrace of incarnational mission and ministry. Interestingly, this is found in the very first verse of Jesus' sermon. He came down with them and stood on a level place. He came down with them. Matthew's version has the sermon on the mount, but scholars believe that he came down to a level place there at that mountainside and began to preach this sermon. That's where I'm to stand as a pastor, on a level place with my flock. That's where we are called to stand with others, on a level place with those who are in need, not in a higher place looking down, but seeing them face to face, eye to eye. Is this not the incarnational presence that Jesus seeks from his true followers? To come down and to be with another in their place, to practice being with them, to stand on a level place. While Jesus preached from that level place, he also preached from an unlevel place, an unlevel perspective. He preached an upside-down kingdom. A leveling and equality ushered in by his followers needs being met by those with met needs. A countercultural force of love that embraces what is ugly and shuns what is beautiful. This message takes us to higher ground. The kingdom of God becomes the way we see things, the lens through which we live. It is a gift to be able already now to see into God's world. In saying all of this, Jesus is describing a future reality of the kingdom of God and tracing out the steps, tracing out the shape of our present lives now. And of course, neither the college president nor Dr. Theodore F. Adams, nor I are smart enough or wise enough to figure out those questions for ourselves. We find them all, verse by verse, in the sixth chapter of Luke. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Amen. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you and praise you that we don't need to look far at all to find a yardstick to measure our spiritual growth. 
His name is Jesus. And he's given us his word. Help us to live daily seeking your wisdom, your guidance, your grace, mercy, and forgiveness as we live out the calling you've given us. When we fall short, we're very thankful that you pick us up and that your grace is all sufficient no matter what our circumstance. And we know that whatever we go through, whatever trial or temptation or persecution, that you are with us and that you provide a way out. And that way is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as we respond to what we have heard, prayed, read, sung, preached on this day. Amen.